0: Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution Podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. March was Brain Injury Awareness Month, and last week we recorded this episode on traumatic brain injury and concussions for our NeuroAcademy community. We discussed the definitions, classification, presentation, signs and symptoms, management, and treatment of TBI and concussions, and we answered some questions. Neuro Academy is a membership-based online environment where you'll have access to resources to achieve optimal health, a better, sharper memory, and prevent cognitive decline. The platform provides the opportunity to connect with us and an empowering community, and participate in weekly live Q&A sessions, live cooking sessions, live podcasts, and Q&As with remarkable health leaders, and have access to an on-demand courses on prevention of neurological diseases, evidence-based nutrition and cooking, and future courses on various topics related to brain health. Members will also be able to get CE and CME credits if they're interested, and also receive certification after taking the course. Join us by visiting neuroacademy.com. Now let's start listening to the episode. Thank you so much for joining us. We're talking about Susan. Now, Susan got a concussion in sophomore year of high school while practicing for her softball team. Given that it was uh, warm-up time, everybody was doing their own things, which meant that no one was keeping a track of, you know, the balls, the the bats, and other flying objects. And um, Susan was busy just doing her thing, and she was leaning down to pick up her mitt. And she suddenly heard a loud noise, which initially shocked her. And she didn't know what had happened, but then she realized that the sound was that of a softball hitting her head. She felt lightheaded right away, and she kind of felt a little dizzy for a few seconds, and then got a bit foggy for another few minutes. But she never lost consciousness. Um, She didn't go to the nurse, and um, she actually pushed herself through the rest of the practice. When her mother picked her up, she knew that something was not right. She initially shrugged it off and just said that she was having a terrible headache, and she was feeling off a little and imbalanced, and she always thought while she was sitting in the car and talking to her mother as if the ground underneath her was not stable and that the world was spinning, everything was moving in one direction. As it happened, she had a doctor's appointment the next day, and on her way, she told her mother that a softball had hit her head. While at the doctor, um, she had trouble understanding the nurse, and the doctor asked if she was okay. And when her mother said that she got hit in the head, the doctor did, you know, a couple of neurological exams, looked into her eyes, and tested her balance and coordination, and right away told her to go to the hospital. Uh, While she was walking back to the car, she was very unsteady on her feet, and she kind of stumbled and she was getting more and more nervous by the minute now that the doctor told her to go to the emergency room to get herself checked. She initially didn't want to go, but at the same time, she knew that there was something wrong and she needed to be checked. The hospital nurse asked her a couple of questions, and she had difficulty speaking, um, and she couldn't really understand or keep a track of what the nurse was telling her. And her mom started answering for her, When the doctor came in, the doctor uh, looked into her eyes, asked her some questions, did a neurological examination, and said that she should stay at home from school the next day, but that she should get better in about 48 hours. She was very worried because this felt very, very serious. Um, Little did Susan know that she would be spending many years jumping from doctor to doctor from that day on, trying to find a relief from her pain, dizziness, and fogginess. She lost touch with most of her friends, and she had to lay down for most of the time every single day. Doctors were never much helped, and they kept on repeating to her that time will heal, that she had a concussion, and that she was going to get better. Um, She got to a point where she stopped going to different specialists because they made her feel as if you know, she wasn't doing her uh, responsibility or her part in getting better. And some of the doctors were quite arrogant. Some of them were quite flippant. And she realized that everybody was essentially giving her a variation of the same statement that she was going to get better with time.
1: They run around.
0: They had no concept of what it was actually like to live with severe pain every single day. She was sick of taking the impact test, which, and the MOCA, which is a neuropsychological test, over and over again, and be told that her results showed some struggle, but nothing alarming. Um, She was never an average student in school. She was always excellent, and her grades were A+. And this came to bite her. When her test came back normal, the doctors who did not know her before told her that she had mild concussion, that she was going to get better, and um, she really didn't have a previous one that they could compare these new neuropsychological testing to. And um, she didn't do bad as far as other parameters were concerned. Mm -hmm. Her blood pressure was fine, her heart rate was fine, um, and you know, she never had any other physical symptoms that would trigger um, any abnormalities. And, uh, you know, she basically, what she did was she stepped back and she gave herself the permission to figure this out herself. And she started uh, trying different things, um, you know, whether it was with better sleep, whether it was cleaning up her diet, um, building some muscle, building some endurance. Mm -hmm. Over the course of a few years, she went from needing to help walking because she actually bought a cane to start walking, she began to walk on her own, be able to exercise, be able to do her activity of daily living, like doing her own laundry and washing the dishes and cleaning the kitchen and taking care of the house. She, you know, could go outside without needing to wear sunglasses anymore. Those were one of the symptoms that were bothering her quite a bit. The sunshine would just bother her and trigger headaches and weakness. She could watch movies again. She could actually be functional when the lights were dimmer, when nighttime would come. She wouldn't have this exhaustion and fatigue that she felt every single day. Um, Before this, she went years without watching movies and going outside because of her symptoms. So overall, you know, slowly and gradually she got better, but she learned it the hard way and it was a very frustrating journey for her Um, and she never had any Resources that would inform her about her head injury, and she started developing her own hobbies. The hardest obstacle she encountered was learning to deal with people who thought that she was being dramatic. Um, sometimes, people who have, um, you know, traumatic brain injury or concussions. They have what we call the invisible man syndrome or the invisible syndrome, you know, which essentially means that on the outside, people are okay. They seem to be quite healthy. They don't have any scars or marks, but physiologically and, you know, uh, internally, they can't function as normal human beings. So the first thing that she did was to try to educate others, including doctors and nurses, to be empathic. And she actually stood up for herself and she was a representation of what it means to have traumatic brain injury. And there, you know, she, she kept on telling everyone and she documented this, that sometimes the comments were very hurtful. And so she essentially built a protective um, metaphorical wall between herself and these people so that she did not, she would not get hurt by their um, chosen ignorance. Now this whole experience was very isolating, but also very empowering as well. So we wanted to speak about Susan because I think she is a beautiful representation of what it is to go through this horrifying condition, uh, cognitive impairment due to traumatic brain injury and concussion. And we wanted to take some time to kind of give you all an idea of what the disease is, what happens, its physiology, uh, what happens in the brain when somebody is suffering from traumatic brain injury, what are some of the treatments that are available, and what is the latest research on traumatic brain injury.
1: And and this case is very telling because it's not a very overt um, traumatic brain brain injury. It's not the kind where there's an open, open wound. There is um, damage that is um, uh, observed by physicians, um, uh, whether it's on the skull or on the brain itself. Uh, they didn't find anything as far as any damage to the skull they didn't find anything as far as damage to the brain but it was it was uh, bad enough that it uh, you know continued to have sequela and 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 continued to have symptoms for years um and and without that identifier i i, I love uh, well um, it's a terrible concept but the idea of being almost invisible um the the symptoms are invisible the person almost becomes invisible because mm-hmm. doctors with their short um time periods and uh, their limited uh, resources uh, they get frustrated and they everybody has to have narrative so they create narrative that this person is making things up so they become incredulous and and uh, this 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 can actually propagate a really negative cycle in the medical field most definitely and and a great deal of traumatic brain injuries or are, are in this way you, you don't have people who've had Uh, you know significant injury that can be observed through with the eye or with the imaging modalities but it's underlying low grade the the destruction which we will describe that really affects the brain and and this condition is quite quite common and uh, we want to make sure that we identify we understand it we know what it is and you guys to know what it is Um, besides the fact that Every precaution should be taken to avoid head trauma, which is a very common thing. But when when somebody has head trauma, especially when they're older, there should definitely be some precautions and and, uh, observations to be made to make sure that it doesn't become a chronic thing.
0: Agree, agree. All right. So a little bit of background about traumatic brain injury. Um, Traumatic brain injuries are a leading cause of death and disability in the United States. And according to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, a traumatic brain injury, and I'll refer to it as TBI, the acronym, TBI is caused by a bump, blow, or a jolt to the head, or sometimes a penetrating head injury that disrupts the normal function of the brain. Um, Traumatic impact injuries can also be defined as closed, which is Mm non-penetrating, or open penetrating. In fact, the CDC reports that 75% of TBIs are mild. So they are categorized as mild traumatic brain injuries or concussions. Mm-hmm. So concussion and mild traumatic brain injuries are synonymous, essentially.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah.
0: The most common reason why people have traumatic brain injury in descending order of frequency includes unintentional falls, being unintentionally struck by an object, you know, any head injuries where you hit your head against something or something hits your head, um, motor vehicle accidents, and assault. Um, there are some other causes where the mechanisms are not really specified. And the least common one is intentional self-harm. Uh, the Department of Defense identifies TBI as the signature injury of groups of uh, veterans, specifically Operation Mm. Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom veterans. And among them, blast injuries are a common mechanism of injury associated with that particular war period. So it definitely is a serious public health issue. According to the CDC, there's approximately 2.87 million TBI-related emergency department visits every year, hospitalizations and deaths in the United States, all of them together. Of those of the 2.87 million um, visits or um, cases, 52,000 um, of them, uh, 52,000 people actually die.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and just to reiterate that the spectrum, we have people that have this traumatic brain injury and concussions where you don't have overt signs. And the other side is uh, open injuries and significant injuries, like uh, uh, some of the people that we heard about. uh, Stacey Morgan, which uh, was a comedian that had a significant injury. And then Natasha Richardson, which is Liam Neeson's wife, who had a ski injury, um, hit her head. She was fine. She went uh, home. And all of a sudden, she became lightheaded and and, uh, lost consciousness and passed away. And in that case, it was what's called a subdural hematoma where blood actually accumulates under the skull and then pushes the brain in uh, inward. So you have the whole spectrum. And we
0: will discuss all of that exactly, in detail exactly. as, as we move forward. Um,
1: 275 hospitalization. um, And uh, 1.4 million are treated and released from emergency room on a regular basis, just from TBI.
0: Yeah, so, so, you know, even though the numbers are documented as far as how many people essentially, you know, lose their lives because of traumatic brain injury and how many hospitalizations there are, there's 1.4 million people who are treated and released from an emergency department every year. And many believe that this is an underrepresentation because a lot of people don't even go to the hospital exactly. for it. Exactly. Um, And that is one of the reasons why you know traumatic brain injury is associated with such high morbidity and um, you know such a high cost of well. And mortality. Because, because yeah. they live with these consequences for a long time.
1: And ironically, the people, the uh, the group that that is at most risk, the elderly, mm-hmm. are the ones that. Don't end up going to the emergency room right. for, for um, head trauma exactly. and, and injuries, uh, tra- traumatic brain injuries.
0: And you know the 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 sad thing is most TBIs are avoidable. In fact, um, a report from the Brain Injury Association of America stated that ninety percent, nine zero percent of sports related TBIs can be prevented by using proper equipment and safety measures. And there's about fifty percent of TBIs that happen in traffic accidents. Okay. And it can be prevented by just wearing a seatbelt. So not to minimize anything, but, you know, prevention is at the core of making sure this doesn't happen and improve the numbers that we have so far.
1: Just a simple public health intervention. For those who don't believe in public health intervention, the data is right in front of us. Like seatbelt has saved millions of lives. Right,
0: absolutely. All right, so uh, let's talk about some of the gender differences. Mm -hmm. Now, the statistics show that uh, male cases outnumber female cases. Um, 73% of all TBIs are reported in male cases with highest incidence occurring in the ages, you know, from birth to four years of age, mm-hmm. and then from 15 to 19 years of age, and then the rest are 65 years and older. Um, but in sports-related concussions, female cases outnumber male cases, Um, in a ratio of two to one. That's interesting. And they they think that the discrepancy is probably because of reporting. Women report more than men. Um, And also because of, you know, just some cultural differences of, uh, you know, men essentially think that it's normal to hit your head against something and never report it. Um, Sometimes, you know, physiological differences exist as well. Uh, women tend to have more symptoms than men and it has to do something with the differences in their head to neck ratio, mm-hmm. whiplash injury that comes along with head uh, traumas. Um, and among older individuals, people over the age of 65, the frequency of traumatic brain injury is essentially the same for men and mm-hmm. women.
1: I would, I would presume that the the disparity that exists as among men and women is usually in the teen years because the risk-taking risk taking um behaviors of young men. Um, I know that that that's been shown in many other conditions as well. So uh, I would definitely think that that would be a major the, the differentiator as far as the, the, the numbers are concerned.
0: That's interesting. I think, yes, um, yeah. I will definitely look into that granular data. Um, so what are some of the long-term implications of TBI? Um, as we said earlier, it's the leading cause of disability uh, among children and young adults in the United States. Uh, current literature, uh, literature shows that more than 1.1% of U.S. population is living with TBI. That's a big number. Huge. 1.1%. And, th-
1: and I think that's understated.
0: Right, exactly. Of that population, more than 40% of them have moderate to severe injuries and long-term disabilities. It's a very expensive uh, condition. The cost ranges from 56 to $221 billion every year. And um, again, like many neurological conditions um, and long-term uh, you know, disabilities, there are so many other hidden indirect costs that are associated with their caregivers and yeah. lost wages that are never reported. All right. So as far as the different types um, and causes of traumatic brain injury is concerned, there are essentially three. There's mild, moderate, and severe traumatic brain injury. Mild traumatic brain injury is also known as a concussion and is the most common type of TBI. It is essentially characterized by a brief change in mental state or consciousness. So um, there, are, there have been several guidelines that have come out uh, that have defined what it essentially means to have mild, moderate to severe. Um, so I'm actually reading from the latest guideline. And um, yes, so mild mild traumatic brain injury it essentially, um, you know, uh, people don't have any loss of consciousness, and even if they do, it's very, very brief. It's always less than thirty minutes. Um, they feel a bit altered for up to twenty-four hours, but nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time, when they get CT scans or imaging of the brain, it's essentially normal. There's a there's a condition called post-traumatic amnesia or forgetfulness. And that is usually seen with traumatic brain injury. In mild traumatic brain injury, it's usually a couple of hours to less than a day. Moderate TBI, these, these different factors, you know, change. So what, are, what are we looking at? We're looking at loss of consciousness. We're looking at uh, loss of consciousness at the onset, alteration of consciousness during that period, imaging findings and post traumatic assessment.
1: The, the forgetfulness is is not complete, meaning that it's not global. You you forget everything, you know, speaking, uh, uh, people around you. That would be delirium, or or you know. So um, this is you you forget certain parts of your memory, either anterograde, meaning you can't create new memories, so whatever happens, you forget it, or you forget a short period right uh, right before the event. Yes. So um, and that's distinctive for it.
0: Exactly. There is a particular type of test that is usually done at the field and in the hospital multiple times when people have traumatic brain injury is called a Glasgow Coma Scale. So the Glasgow Coma Scale is a scoring system where people are scored for three things, eye opening, Mm -hmm. verbal response, and motor commands. So say, for example, the, the, the higher the number is, the better people are, the better their consciousness is. The lower it is, the most affected their consciousness is. So for mild traumatic brain injury, the highest score is essentially 15. So if they're between 13 to 15 Glasgow coma scale or GCS scale, they're good. Moderate is obviously more severe than mild traumatic brain injury, and it's characterized by a loss of consciousness for more than 30 minutes, and a period of amnesia that lasts more than 24 hours. And the symptoms can include headache, confusion, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, slurred speech, drowsiness, and difficulty concentration. Severe TBI, uh, where the Glasgow Coma Scale can be as low as 3 to 8, is the most serious type of traumatic brain injury, and it's characterized by loss of consciousness. So people actually Mm -hmm. lose consciousness completely, and they stay out of consciousness for more than 24 hours, they have a period of amnesia that could last more than seven days. Their symptoms could include things that I just mentioned earlier for uh, moderate TBI, but it could also have drowsiness, difficulty concentration, you know, dementia type symptoms as well.
1: These levels have actually predictive value, meaning that if somebody is in Glasgow scale, uh, the more severe Glasgow scale for a longer period, we have data as far as what the probability of improvement, what the probability of recovery is. So these numbers are not just arbitrary d- descriptives, but they give you a prediction of how well they, can, they will probably do. When, whenever a patient, you've, you and I have done this, as neurologists, um, we, uh, one of our jobs is to kind of uh, tell the family if somebody's in them, not, not just for TBI, whether it's for stroke or for some other condition where they're in coma, we do the uh, uh, Glasgow uh, Coma Scale and some other tests. And, and when we tell them that the probabilities are X, Y, and Z, it comes from this kind of data, because we have lots of data for many, many, many uh, years, for many years, where um, we've seen when a person was at this stage with these conditions and, and, and at this l- length of time unresponsive, that the likelihood of coming is you know a certain amount. So it's very predictive. Mm-hmm. Um, as, um, and we always do the Glasgow Coma Scale just to make sure where they are, at, uh, um, especially right after the trauma.
0: Exactly. All right. So let's, let's talk about the pathophysiology of traumatic <clears throat> brain injury, which essentially means what happens in the brain and in the brain cells and what happens to the cellular function uh, within the brain when somebody hits their head or they have traumatic uh, brain injury. So as we mentioned earlier, when people have traumatic injuries, there is a disruption of normal cellular function. And this can be because of that blunt trauma. Now, the blunt trauma can cause either a direct force or a rotational force or shearing forces. And these forces um, may be present in all severities of injuries. What is a rotational force? Rotational force is essentially something that kind of twists the infrastructure of the brain in a way where there is disruption between the connections of brain cells and axons within the white matter tracts of the brain.
1: And all of them, almost the axons are the most vulnerable. If it's twisting, it's the two brains that are connected through these these connections, white matter connections between the two, two cells, uh, uh, two, two brains, two brains, yeah, okay. two sides of the brain. Oh, that's right and, right. and they and and they twist, and and that creates a shearing between okay. this communication. Right, right. Uh, and then the other kind of shearing is movement where the white matter is actually sheared, yeah. and there is some level of trauma in the white matter.
0: Absolutely. So. Uh, so definitely that can cause in what we refer to as diffuse axonal injury. Injury, yes. Um, and the acronym is DAI. In a lot of you know scientific papers, you actually look at and we've created specific imaging techniques to be able to measure diffuse axonal injury and traumatic brain injury.
1: And the fact that the white matter is injured, it has distinct outcomes. It's, it has distinct characteristics as far as how people will manifest disease because the axons are the connection between neurons and different parts. And a, a, if a particular part is injured, then you know what kind of deficits they will have. Mm-hmm. If it's a general axonal injury, then it's more of a slowing process. We'll get to uh, to that in more detail. Right. But it is uh, the reason I'm talking about it here is because it's not just um, a, a general shearing. It has distinctive Clinical outcomes
0: exactly, and and just to kind of go over a few steps of what we know so far as w- as to what happens in the brain when there is a focal injury, mm-hmm. um, the there's shearing of the axons, they're damaged, whether it's direct or rotational forces. Now the cells get damaged, so there are specific types of chemical reactions that happen where the potassium inside the cells leave and they leave the cell membranes depolarized. Mm -hmm. This is also called impact depolarization. And then there are some specific amino acids and neurotransmitters that are released. And then there's a disruption in the flow of calcium and potassium in and out of the cell. The calcium that goes inside the cell actually starts damaging its function and infrastructure. And the cell, even though the blood vessels are intact they go through a phase of hypoxia, which means that they are not able to use oxygen to generate energy. So you have cellular hypoxia, and that's why when they do specific types of um, imaging uh, testing on the brain, sometimes people with TBI almost look as if they've had stroke. Uh They have diffusion-weighted imaging specific findings that look like there is hypoxic injury in the brain as well. And then the brain is essentially forced into different types of metabolism that causes a lot of oxidative stress. There's lactic acid buildup. There is breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. A lot of the cells die. The brain atrophies. There's degeneration. And there's, you know, very local inflammatory responses that occur within hours. And there's long-term inflammatory response that can cause even more diffuse injury through a flood of neurotransmitters long-term as well.
1: And the, these two almost look like different diseases. Right. The long-term chronic state looks very different than the acute state. And, exactly. and um, that's why we we try to follow these patients closely, although we don't get, many people don't, don't, don't come to the doctor for a traumatic brain injury over, over a long period of time.
0: That, that's why it's very important to be connected with someone who's a specialist in this field And they have, you know, dedicated clinics uh, for traumatic brain injury because the long-term follow-up, like you said, is incredibly important. Now, there are specific MRI techniques to look at uh, the damage um, in the brain due to traumatic brain injury. There's one specific sequence called diffuser tensor imaging, or DTI. Mm -hmm. What it can do is it can evaluate the damage in white matter tracts. Um, and also look at how axonal injury causes swelling and things of that nature. So all of this causes damage to, in the cellular function, but it also causes some changes in cerebral blood flow. Initially, there is a decrease of, uh, decrease of blood flow followed by vasodilatation, which means there's a rush of blood to, uh, to the specific parts of the brain, and that releases a lot of nitric oxide, oxidative stress, and it, this vascular um, phenomenon is actually seen in the later stages of mild traumatic brain injury.
1: Yeah, the, you'll see this common theme. A lot of times, the brain and the body, for that matter, and trying to fix the situation causes more harm. The sudden uh, onslaught of uh, uh, toxins and uh, um, cytokines and and blood and 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 vasodilation is there to you know, give some protection, give oxygen, give the, bring the uh, inflammatory factors to heal because inflammation is actually necessary. But in doing so often it it, uh, overreacts and has significant long-term consequences. Right.
0: So what we just described was a focal injury, which means, you know, the, the, the brain or the head was hit with an object from one side. But then there is a diffuse injury as well. And sometimes both focal and diffuse injury can happen at the same time in the same person. Focal injury, like I said, can result from direct impact, but the indirect impact is usually secondary to uh, what we call the acceleration-deceleration forces, yes. or also known as coup-counter-coup injury. So say, for example, I should have actually brought the brain model here to show everyone in Academy, but say, for example, your head is hit with a bat. That sounds very ominous, but yes. you know, something hits your head on the r- on the left side. Your left temporal lobe is hit. However, the right side of your brain actually suffers from that injury as well. And this is because the brain is surrounded by a very thin layer of cerebrospinal fluid, and the force uh, from the direct impact can actually push the brain to the opposite side of the skull. And it causes a second impact. So there's going to be laceration or bruising or diffuse axonal injury on the other side as Correct. well. Uh, focal injuries are usually, um, usually seen in the frontal lobe, in the temporal lobe, but diffuse injuries are seen anywhere uh, in the brain. And the, it, can, it can result in significant problems with thinking, executive function uh, a lot of behavioral uh, disorders uh, gener- are generated, impulsivity, disinhibition, etc. Come because of diffuse uh, injury as well.
1: Absolutely, Absolutely.
0: All right. So, um, as far as uh, specific types of focal injury are concerned, um, there are some examples, and there are multiple different mechanisms for it. But I wanted to talk about some of the hemorrhages that are focal. Bleeding. Bleeding. So you know we have epidural hematoma, subdural hematoma, subarachnoid hemorrhage. And intraventricular hemorrhage, and um, uh, you know the the symptoms depend on how extensive these these types of um, injuries are, bleedings are. So I'm going to start with epidural hematoma, and I can actually show some pictures later on as well of what that looks like. Um, as you may recall from our conversation in the, pa- in the past, the brain is covered by membranes or meninges, and depending on which layer of Uh, of this brain is hurt and which artery at which layer between two layers is hurt, it presents with specific types of bleeding in the brain. The epidural hematoma is when there's bleeding outside of the layer or the dura of the brain. It doesn't really cross the suture lines, so you tend to see, um, you know, a very focal bleed outside of the dura and it's classically associated with damage to the meningeal artery.
1: Yeah, so Menin- so it can be actually pretty pretty um, significant because because it's an artery, it can right. accumulate pretty rapidly.
0: Right. Um, and you were talking about Liam Neeson's wife. You know, she actually had a head trauma, and she was—I think she was skiing. She fell, She was, yeah. she was skiing. She had a head trauma. And she was a classic representation of epidural hematoma, where there's usually a very brief period of loss of consciousness, and then they wake up and there's a lucid interval. And then later on, within hours, they have slow and gradual cognitive decline as the epidural hematoma enlarges and enlarges and it presses against the brain, and it causes... Um, you know, increased intracranial pressure and then herniation of the brainstem and it's, 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 um, it's very deadly.
1: Her- herniation means that whenever there's pressure in the brain, it pushes the rest of the brain down. And, and yes. when it pushes the rest brain of the brain stem. down, the brainstem is pushed down. And the brainstem is where your survival centers are, exactly. your breathing, your you know, um, your heart rate, everything. So if any, anything pushes the brainstem down in a, in a confined space, your heart stops, your breathing stops. So, so that's why uh, herniation can be terrible, especially when there's, uh, as a consequence of a head trauma.
0: Absolutely. So that was epidural hematoma. Subdural hematoma is uh, when there is bleeding inside the dura mater or the layer. And this blood can cross the suture lines and it's classically associated with damage to a type of veins called bridging veins. And when you look at imaging or CT scan, it kind of looks like a, crescent-shaped region of, of bleeding in the
1: brain. And this is important, especially for people who are getting older, right. because the brain shrinks. For those who, people whose brain has shrunk, that means that there isn't much room, there's a lot of room for movement. So all these bridging veins are tenuous. So if the brain moves a lot, it's actually, it has a tendency to pull some of the veins and tear it, and then ble- it starts bleeding. Yeah. So bridging veins actually get torn with the br- when the brain is shrunk and smaller and, and is moved as a result of a head trauma or even just a rapid movement. I've seen elderly patients who didn't fall, didn't hit their heads. With a whiplash with injury. With a whiplash injury, uh, the, the brain moved. And because there was a lot of space, it actually pulled the veins with it, tore the veins, and the blood accumulated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. These bridging veins almost look like spokes of a wheel. You know, they're small little veins That if when the brain is not atrophied, they are not snagged. Correct. But when it is, Mm -hmm. like Dean said, it's very easy to uh, to get it damaged. All right. And then um, I'm I'm just going to classify everything, and then we're going to go ahead and talk about diagnosis and treatment later. Um, So the 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 third type is subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, Subarachnoid hemorrhage essentially means that. You know, the uh, the bleeding actually goes in the subarachnoid space around the different lobes and structures of the brain. It's very difficult to diagnose subarachnoid hemorrhage because even if there's a tiny bit of a bleeding, it might not show itself on CT scans. And the only way you can find out is by getting a sample of the cerebral spinal f- uh, fluid by a, a, a spinal tap. Um, subarachnoid hemorrhage can be traumatic or it could be non-traumatic. A uh, ruptured aneurysm is a very common cause of subarachnoid hemorrhage, and uh, usually people tend to have a lot of headaches with it. And right. you know, it can actually get worse and worse if it's more. Then it can cause loss of consciousness. When
1: they have that kind of bleed, uh, especially from an aneurysm, they they uh, it's been known to say that uh, for them to say that it's the worst headache of my life because yeah. it's thunderclap. All of a sudden, it comes in, and it's the worst headache of their life.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, all right. So. I mentioned diffuse injury uh, or diffuse axonal injury, um, and when it's present on imaging, um, the, the diagnosis or the prognosis is quite poor if people have diffuse axonal injury. It can be different grades. There's grade one, grade two, grade three, and it depends on how many parts of the brain uh, shows diffuse axonal injury and the, the higher number of brain parts that visibly shows diffuse axonal injury, the poorer the prognosis is. All right, so let's talk about how all of this is diagnosed.
1: Before we go in there, I um, mean the reason we went into some detail is because, like we said, head trauma is often ignored. Right. And, and yeah, unless it's an open injury or somebody's knocked out and lost consciousness, people ignore it. But it can manifest in all these different ways. And, and, and there have been occasions where the bleeding has happened, but it hasn't gotten to the point where it's actually pressed the brain and the patients weren't aware, especially in elderly. So there's a cumulative bl- uh, blood uh, um, uh, buildup in the brain and then they figure it out or find out after, you know, days or weeks. So you have that slow growing type as well. It's important that if you have a head trauma, and and, and and even if you don't have any symptoms at the beginning, to at least get checked out.
0: Right, yeah. right. And, and there are specific guidelines that actually uh, are created and doctors follow to decide who needs imaging, who needs yes. proper care, or who doesn't. But again, there have been so many guidelines created throughout the years that this is one area yeah. where we don't have very specific guidelines um, um, how should I put it? Very specific Algorithm. um, algorithms and directions for um, healthcare providers to follow. All right. So, you know, at the, the acute management or the on scene assessment of traumatic brain injury is very important. A lot of doctors and sometimes even coaches who are in sports are trained to assess their you know players and the patients right away. Anybody who has a traumatic brain injury they are made sure that they're medically stable. So things like checking their airway.
1: But I tell you that they still miss it. Uh, I mean, uh, right now, this is interesting. NFL, you know that there's a lot of possibility of being sued and so on and so forth. Uh, Miami quarterback Tua had three concussions and one of them was so obvious that he got up after a hit and stumbled and fell to the backwards. And yet he played again in the, in the same game. Um, so if if they miss it, I can assure you that a lot of other people miss it and a lot of clinicians in their community hospitals miss it. So being, you know, more diligent is important.
0: Absolutely. And that's one thing that really causes a lot of, um, it disheartens everyone um, when guidelines are not followed specifically. All right. So, you know, emergency situations, airway, breathing and circulation is checked Um, Sometimes people um, right away have uh, problems with their breathing, and some of them actually may go into cardiac arrest, especially if the brainstem is injured or if the neck is injured as well. Um, An initial Glasgow Coma Scale score actually helps guide further treatment, and it is very important to repeat the GCS frequently because mental state can actually decline in a very short period of time and it can require rapid interventions like intubation or transferring to a high level of care at the hospital.
1: And intubation because as if there's herniation, the first one of the first things it's going to do is affect the breathing centers. Right. And if you do have a tube, if you have intub- if you are able to intubate the person, then you've saved them because now the machine or 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 even a hand device can do the breathing for the person. So now you have time. So knowing that is critical.
0: Right. Um, For the moderate and severe cases of TBI, you know, depending on how extensive the damage is, it may require intubation, mechanical ventilation for airway protection. Sometimes coma is induced, um, especially in situations where, for example, if there's bleeding or if there's too much pain or when people tend to have seizures after traumatic brain injury. Um, Usually when people have moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, they present with polytrauma, which means that other parts of their body uh-huh. are also hurt. So, you know, it's a very comprehensive care of that person and intubation can actually help provide better care. Uh, as far as imaging is concerned, the first thing that doctors and nurses usually do is they get a CT scan. It's the first line imaging assessment to find out if there's any pathology in the, in the brain, in the, in the cranium. Um, and then depending on what they find, it may or may not require surgical interventions. Um, Some of the common findings on CT scans are depressed skull fractures, subdural hematoma, epidural hematoma, subarachnoid hemorrhage, and sometimes even intraventricular hemorrhage, which means that the blood actually goes inside the spaces in the brain, which are the ventricles. Um, it's a, it's a multifaceted approach. Um, you know, traumatic brain injury is approached by and evaluated by neurologists, a neurosurgical team, a rehab doctor later on as well, and trauma surgeons.
1: And one of the things that often is missed is an EEG. Uh, So if somebody has a trauma to the head, that creates a focus for seizure, a point of irritation. Right, right. Um, uh, so that's also something to do as well.
0: Right. Um, EEGs, um, is is uh, either done uh, on the spot to rule out a seizure, and sometimes they're done long term as well to assess a sleep wake cycle, mm-hmm. um, m- managing medication because some of these patients need to go into a you know barbiturate coma, and the dose of that medication is adjusted based on what we see on EEG as well. So multiple different things can happen. Um, a decompressive surgery can happen where pe- doctors actually completely, is nurse surgeons, take out a bone flap and they leave it out and they allow for the brain to swell, to uh, you know, for the swelling to resolve. And it can be replaced at a later time. And for that long period of time, people are made to wear a helmet. They're made to sit up <clears throat> properly. And there's so many different specific guideline directive therapies that involve there. A lot of times with diffuser ex- axonal injury, the pressure in the brain goes up very high. So sometimes monitoring devices are inserted in the brain. They're called intracranial pressure monitoring devices, ICP monitoring. And depending on what the pressure is, normally it's between 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury. If it's higher, they actually extract blood or fluid to make sure that the pressure is released. Um, and they, you know, there are specific practice guidelines that um, that help us decide what the next ones are. Um, there are times when people tend to have increased intracranial pressure for a very long period of time and they may need shunts. Mm -hmm. So shunts are placed. And then there are specific types of fluids and medications that are given to them to keep the pressure down, like mannitol, hypertonic saline, hyperventilation, barbiturate coma, and further decompression surgeries as well. Um, So I think it's important to to know that not all patients who sustain a traumatic brain injury require these kind of advanced yeah, head these imaging are more, or hospitalization.
1: More, more right. more advanced. Though. Yeah,
0: about 90, 80 to 90% of all traumatic brain injuries are mild, where the GCS is between 13 to 15, which means they're not unconscious, they open their eyes, they follow commands, they move. And so the vast majority don't require such uh, you know, intensive care. Uh, the Canadian commuted tomography head rule for minor head injury was developed to actually help patients to help clinicians decide the appropriateness of getting imaging for concussions and sports-related concussions. So it's like a table where they say when people people are high risk and they need to get a CT scan if, um, if they don't have a score of 15 on Glasgow Coma scale within two hours. If you suspect that they have a skull fracture, if you suspect that they have a basal skull fracture, which mm-hmm. is base on the, uh, the head, if they have vomiting, vomiting is actually a sign of increased intracranial pressure, so that you need to do some imaging, and if they're 65 years and older. You, they're at a medium risk for brain injury on a CT scan if they have retrograde amnesia for more than 30 minutes. And um, if the mechanism of injury was dangerous means like it was a stab or an open injury and things of that nature. Yeah. So that, that actually helps patients decide whether they should uh, oh, sorry, uh, helps doctors decide whether they need to do imaging or not. There is there are particular types of syndromes that are seen after trauma, uh, and these include things like post-traumatic seizures, post-traumatic neuroendocrine disorders post-traumatic hydrocephalus, where there's increased pressure, uh, post-traumatic agitation. So just wanted to kind of shed light on some of those. Uh, And
1: and depression and anxiety, and of course, and PTSD. But the the endocrine disorders seem to be related to uh, damage to the pituitary. This little organ, which is the size of the tip of your pinky, which is at the center of the brain, right under the optic uh, uh, chiasm, and uh, it releases most of the, uh, you know, uh, endocrine chemicals from thyroid to uh, sex hormones to growth hormone and and others. And whenever somebody's had a head trauma, that has a tendency to get damaged or severed. And imagine losing, uh, you know, the input from pituitary to the rest of the body, and that's going to significantly affect um, uh, multiple systems. But it doesn't have to. You can actually have damage to one element. For example, a common thing is. Uh, thyroid Night. disorder. Exactly. A, another one is people have difficulty with sleep and sleep cycles are completely altered um, or they they actually start gaining weight. Um, and weight gain is actually a very common thing after a traumatic brain injury right. for a couple of reasons. One is the trauma itself, the PTSD and the emotional and depression, anxiety that, 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 that is also related to weight gain but also related to the pituitary being damaged. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that your doctors can do is check prolactin levels and different um, uh, g- um, uh, chemicals to check the f- uh, fidelity and function of your pituitary. And that's important. Right. By the way, the pituitary can get damaged with simple or minor head injuries. So that's something to be, uh, be aware of.
0: Right. Um, it's very sensitive, like Dean said, to the, Acceleration deceleration injuries because it's so fragile and it it's you know just the mechanical uh, injury owing to its location and size interruption of the fragile vascular supply that it has Um, yeah so the prevalence of neuroendocrine abnormalities is higher for severe traumatic brain injury it has a prevalence of about. 50 to 80%. So 50 to 80% of people who have had severe TBI have some sort of a neuroendocrine disorder. And like Dean said, it's very important to get it checked. Complications include conditions like diabetes insipidus, syndrome of inappropriate uh, adrenocorticotropic hormones, a mouthful, S-I-E-D-H, human growth, growth hormone or adrenocorticotropic hormone deficiencies, And addressing all of these is important when it comes to uh, rehabilitation after severe uh, TBI. Um, Now, if there's low suspicion for uh, uh, thyroid hormone or for pituitary hormone damage, we actually don't have very specific guideline directed suggestions to monitor these hormones. Sometimes when people have difficulty with concentration and a potential um, um, hormonal disruption, um, this is the reason why doctors are not inclined to go ahead and order these things. Yeah. You said that even for mild traumatic brain injury cases, it can, they should get but the get doctors checked.
1: usually don't get it checked.
0: But they yes. don't. So yes. it would be important for people who are listeners right now to have a conversation with their doctors, to ask them, like, what are the chances of a neuroendocrine disruption uh, or post-traumatic neuroendocrine disorder after their mild traumatic brain injury.
1: Uh, Being your own advocate, that's what we always talk about here. Being your own advocate with knowledge, with information um, is helpful.
0: Exactly. Um, We touched on post-traumatic seizures um, earlier. Uh, We actually don't have any particular guidelines telling us that everyone who should, everyone who goes through traumatic brain injury should be considered for seizure therapy. However, there's, uh, there, was, there was a study, a couple of studies showed that when uh, patients with moderate to severe traumatic brain injury were initially given a loading dose of anti-seizure medication and followed by seven days of anti-seizure medication, even in the absence of any seizure, they had lower risk of developing post-traumatic seizures later on. So I think now, that's an important conversation to have during the initial phases of treatment.
1: One thing to know is that when we talk about seizures, most people visualize these movements, which we, uh, neurologists call it tonic-clonic movements, where the person is seizing and moving extremities and all that.
0: Commonly known as grand mal seizures. Grand mal
1: seizures, yeah. But uh, uh, the thing that you might not know is that a lot of seizures don't have any of those movements. Exactly. So electrical, I mean, silent seizures, where the electrical activity is there, but the movements are not right. there. Or, or absence seizures, where the person is just losing time. They're looking into space, and people think, oh, they're just thinking. But actually, it's a seizure activity that needs to be right. addressed.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Focal seizures are the most common type of latent seizures in cases of moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. That's a very important point. Um, the, next, the next complication that is usually seen is post-traumatic hydrocephalus. And it is important to identify it because its treatment can affect functional outcome later on. What happens is um, the ventricles or the spaces inside the brain, they enlarge. And this is potentially because there is a brain tissue loss. Uh, what we refer to as ex-vacuodilatation, um, especially when there is damage to the brain. So it's important to differentiate between the damage to the brain versus increased pressure in the brain. And sometimes it's hard to differentiate between the two, although I have to say neuro- good neurologists can differentiate yeah. between yeah. them. So the treatment most often involves a shunt placement. So there is you know, a shunt that goes from the ventricle into the peritoneum, into the belly, um, to make sure that the pressure does not increase. And this can actually help a lot of people. Obviously, it comes with its own sets of um, complications. Sometimes it gets infected. Sometimes it gets plugged. Uh, but uh, overall, it definitely helps the brain heal faster and it helps with balance and walking and yeah. functioning well.
1: And it's, there's a syndrome associated with hydrocephalus. It's three things. It's They start having wobbly walking. They can't walk like as if they're drunk. They, they, they definitely even with finger with dysmetria, they're with fingers, but but usually it's uh, with walking. They have cognitive decline, not necessarily dementia, but cognitive decline. They're not as sharp. They're, they're disoriented. They're, uh, they're, they are disoriented they are they they can not figure things out as quickly, and and it's pretty distinct. People can tell the difference exactly. And then urinary incontinence, so they lose control of urine. Now, all, you don't have to have all three of those, but if the, if the all three of them are there together, all of a sudden they appear. That's a sign. That's exactly. a sign to get, to get it checked. And why do we have hydrocephalus? Because we have this incredible system where these arachnoid things that create the cerebral spinal fluid, and they also absorb it. And then it circulates throughout your brain, through, uh, in the ventricles, or around your spine, and back out. It doesn't go out. And at some point, it's either to, uh, there's a blockage and reabsorption. It's usually because of scarring, because of bleeding, because of things of that nature where the absorption of fluid is not done. So the fluid just keeps accumulating or the pathway is blocked. So the, 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 the fluid accumulates and the ventricles get larger and it pushes against the fibers that affect memory, thinking, walking, and urination, as well as other things. So remember those three things, ur- urinary incontinence or urinary problems, uh, balance problems and memory problems. Now, we all, everybody has some extent of that, but we're talking about something that all of a sudden these three appear together and and significantly. That's something to worry about when it comes to uh, hydrocephalus or the other version, which is called normal pressure hydrocephalus.
0: Absolutely. Some of the other subtle uh, symptoms, because people actually can have very subtle symptoms as yes. well, can be nausea, can be vomiting, can be lethargy, headaches. And there's a particular test that neurologists or ophthalmologists do to look at your your retina and the swelling. Papilledema can be a a symptom of high pressure as well. So sometimes they're not very very specific or very visible. It can be quite subtle as well. And then comes uh, neuropsychiatric disorders, um, disorders of emotions and behavior and agitation. PTA or post traumatic agitation was defined by Bradham's Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation as an excess of one or more behaviors that occurs during an altered state of consciousness. Now, that's a very, very important definition and something that is not quite delineated from the rest. I mean, obviously, we, you know, when people go through traumatic brain injury, they become very depressed and they have a lot of trouble doing their activities of daily living. I mean, imagine being quite functional and then you have a head injury and then you're not functional yes. anymore. So it's a big blow to self-confidence. But there is an entity called post-traumatic agitation that is seen in different phases of traumatic brain injury. And it's very common. It's usually It usually happens at the beginning of a traumatic brain injury in about up to 96% of the cases, but sometimes it can persist longer as well. And it is usually defined as a subset of delirium, you know, where uh, you have behavioral issues and uh, people actually tend to have difficulty reintegrating into their homes and communities after they get out of the hospital or a facility. And it it constitutes irritability, anger, aggression. And, um, you know, there are specific treatments and plans that are focused towards it as well. Absolutely. As far as neuropsychiatric disorders are concerned, we have. Things that, you know, can completely, uh, you know, change people's outlooks towards life. People experience a lot of depression, anxiety, PTSD, psychosis, sometimes paranoia. Pseudobalbar effect, which is inappropriate emotional responses, such as random outbursts of laughing or crying with yeah, no rhyme or reason. Exactly,
1: and uh, sometimes in the opposite setting. Right. They, where they're supposed to be laughing, they cry. Where they're supposed to be crying, they laugh. Mm-hmm. But depression is the most common one.
0: Right. Depression and yeah. aggression, essentially, yes. seems to be the most common ones as well. Yeah. So um, so let's talk about treatment, because I do see that um, Yvonne, um, in NeuroAcademy academy, she's posted and said that she sustained a concussion about 12 weeks ago. Um, what are your recommendations and guidelines regarding resuming jogging, strength training, et cetera? Um, so those are those are some of the very common questions that we usually hear. People who have had mild traumatic brain injury, uh, what are the specific recommendations after having a mild traumatic brain injury? Do people just jump back into their life or are they, should they be cautious?
1: Yeah, it varies. It varies depending on many things. One of the things that it depends on is your pre-morbid state, meaning prior to the trauma, how, were, how functional was the person? How active were the person? The second thing is the trauma itself. How, how massive and, and how um, um, debilitating was it? Uh, and, and of course that matters. And then thirdly, which is how long did it take for recovery? So all those three things, a physician should take all those three things into account when starting. Now here's the, that, that, that's easy enough. I mean, your physician can do that, but here's the, 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 the tough part. Even if you don't have any symptoms left, I- residual symptoms, And what I'm about to say is not to tell you not to get into things, but to truly assess properly when if somebody has resolved most of their symptoms, uh, but they really haven't given, given themselves enough time and they jump back to work and put themselves under stress, they can actually sabotage the recovery. So make sure that you give yourself enough healing time and you don't just jump in to the previous state. It, it's. It, it, I mean, if I can say one blunt statement for this complex and uh, multifarious and multi uh, multifaceted dis- uh, disease process, it's that know uh, where you are in your journey as far as how much you've healed. But even then, give yourself time to heal. And that doesn't mean that you don't jump back into work, but start doing things that are not overly stressful, not anxiety provoking, because the neuropsychological components are real physiological things. It's not a side thing that a person feels sad about the head trauma. It's a consequence of head trauma often. Yeah. So give yourself uh, time to heal.
0: Exactly. Wonderful. Um, great. Um, so so like Dean said, and uh, it, from the information that we have, the you know the first line of treatment, uh, just depends on the extent of the injury. Um, it is usually uh, divided into um, non-pharmacological management and pharmacological management. Um, As far as the non-pharmacological managements are concerned, specifically, uh, initially, it has to do with mobilization, um, uh, managing sensory stimulation. Sometimes people tend to have repeated symptoms when they're overstimulated, whether it's auditory, visual, whether it's tactile, whether it's interpersonal interactions, whether it's vestibular movement. All of that needs to be... Monitored. Uh, Some people might do well. So, you know, exposure to small doses of stimulation and seeing whether people are stable or not is the best way to go. Unfortunately, we don't have a very cookie cutter approach and say, do this, don't do that. Like Mm Dean said, you kind of expose yourself a little bit and see how you feel. And if you do well, Mm -hmm. you kind of continue doing that and then increase the doses as you move forward. uh, as far as movement and mobilization is concerned, um, mastering very basic things first. Um, a lot of people jump into their life thinking that everything is okay, and then they realize that very simple things. Like I had a patient, just to, just as a mm-hmm. story. I had a patient. She was this phenomenal woman. She um, had five children worked two jobs, was creative. She was an artist, so she had her own garage band, you know, just busy mm-hmm. and she she hit her head against the cabinet very hard, passed out for a couple of minutes, got up, and it was categorized as mild, mild traumatic brain injury. Did't have much symptoms, but she didn't feel very stable. And then when she met, went back to life, and, you know, we did some CT scanning and everything else, she came back a couple of weeks later and she said, I have difficulty doing very basic things. Like for example, I have a truck and she wasn't a very tall person. You know, she was like this, you know, very, very strong person, but not tall. So she actually had to like grab onto the handlebars on the truck and get up. She couldn't. She well, couldn't get up on her truck. She said the, the coordinated movement of holding the handlebars and putting my foot on that footrest to get into the truck yeah. was difficult. Or for example, when she would go into the garage, she always had a habit of holding uh, her laundry and she would open the door with her elbow. So this is very specific. She would open the door with her elbow. She would carry the hamper. Right? And then she would swing it with her leg and she would hold it open so that one of her kiddos would follow her in the garage. She said that coordinated movement of opening the garage door with her elbow and holding it open with her leg was something that she had completely forgotten and she nearly hit her baby girl on her face with the door. So, very, very simple things where there are multiple steps that are needed in something as simple as getting up into your truck or holding the garage door open is lost. And that can really be um, dis- it, it, you know, it, disempowering, it disempowering yes. and it, it can be very frustrating. Um, and that's why it's important for people to kind of give themselves or allow themselves to experience everything one more time, master it and then move forward.
1: Absolutely. Right, instead Absolutely. of just
0: assuming that everything is good. I,
1: again, repeating, this is not a cookie cutter uh, approach. There are so many variables that should be taken into consideration your previous state, your previous diseases, your previous um, uh, medical conditions, the, the the amount of the trauma and then the t- period of time of recovery and still give you a tell ch- chance that as, uh, as Aisha said, the non-pharmaceutical is physical therapy, speech therapy, for those who've had difficulty with speech, uh, psych- uh, for, for a lot of people, psychology and, psychi- and psychiatrists um, and and um, and all of these things have to be coordinated in order to do a proper recovery from this. Exactly. Now, here's the thing. For those who've had head injuries, having a second head injury increases your chance of dementia. In fact, studies have shown that people who had a major head injury, uh, traumatic brain injury, um, have anywhere between 40 to 80% increased risk of dementia over, over, over many years. Ironically, if their head injury was younger in life and later in life, the two ends, we keep coming back to, to those two vulnerable ends, uh, the risk of dementia was higher. And then for each head trauma, the the risk went up exponentially. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, it's not like you're you're you know a cat with nine lives, and every time you lose one of those. But but be aware that multiple head injuries create significant problems.
0: Right. And as far as pharmacological management is concerned, I mean, we're not anti medicine, but medicine can be quite helpful in specific situations. Um, especially when it comes to hypoarousal, agitation, seizure management. So you have medications that belong to categories like beta blockers, neurostimulants like methylphenidate, yeah. amantadine, some antipsychotics and SSRIs for depression and anxiety. Um, sleep medication. Sleep medication, benzodiazepines, um, um norepinephrine and dopamine reuptake inhibitors um, but
1: but as little um, benzos as possible but the benzos are benzos are the problematic drugs so yeah
0: right exactly yes yeah. so, but but those have been a yeah, part exactly. of the guideline exactly. Um, exactly. essentially so so there are other medications that can actually help um, specifically too as far as lifestyle is concerned yes. there is a lot of evidence that suggests that lifestyle intervention can be an effective element in treating and in the rehabilitation of patients with TBI. There was a systematic review of randomized control trials found that lifestyle interventions like uh, exercise, cognitive rehabilitation, psychosocial interventions can definitely improve cognitive, physical, and psychosocial outcomes in people with TBI. There was a meta-analysis of randomized control trials that found that lifestyle interventions can improve physical, cognitive, and um, individual social interactions um, uh, with the inpatients with TBI, so we do have uh, we do have that evidence, and it has been implemented in different rehab facilities by specialists in TBI. Again, it just depends on how much a patient can do, um, and it is um, a very a personalized and a very precise intervention that needs to be introduced to the patients.
1: And and the way that uh, um, lifestyle works is is at so many different levels, whether it's exercise, and there've been studies, many studies, even meta-analysis that shows that exercise significantly helps with recovery from TBI, and even CTE, which is uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is what we saw in football players, uh, where this confusion and altered mental state and behavioral state that came as a result of multiple head traumas, a a type of um, traumatic brain injury, With all of them, lifestyles seem to be incredibly helpful, Um, and the path seems to be more around inflammation reduction.
0: Right, inflammation reduction and also neuroplasticity, promotion of um, neuroplasticity and reconnecting parts of the brain that essentially serve as a backup for the parts that are hurt. Now, you mentioned CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and I think it's important for us to kind of speak a little bit about that. Um, uh, like you said, it's a progressive. It's a neurodegenerative condition that, that can happen as a result of repeated head trauma. And unfortunately, a lot of athletes, especially NFL players, military veterans uh, or people who play contact sports, experience these head traumas. And um you and I were reading some papers about it earlier. And, you know most uh, m- most of the symptoms are as a result of buildup of tau protein um in the brain and it can uh, lead to multiple symptoms, such as memory loss, confusion, aggression, depression, and just frank dementia later on as well. Uh, but we don't have a very good understanding of the exact causes, of yet, do right. we? Right,
1: we, we don't. I mean, we, we know that the inflammation is involved. We know that uh, uh, tau is involved. In fact, we, we know that in a tau, which is this unusual protein that stabilizes the, the microtubules inside the neurons. These microtubules are these scaffoldings that are used for transport of things and for st- keeping the cells stable, they're held together by, by these tau proteins and then they're phosphorylated and they released. And when they're released, they clump up. And yeah. that's what tauopathy is. And in and, and, and Alzheimer's, there's some tauopathy, and, but, but in and, uh, Parkinson's and other diseases as well. So that's why Aisha was saying that this is actually turning out to be a degenerative disease, right? which will give us a window into maybe even Alzheimer's and others. So why would a disease that is, happens as a result of head traumas be similar to degenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, as far as their mechanism, maybe there's some influence throughout life as far as trauma is concerned in them as well. Absolutely, yeah. And then the tau actually propagates inflammation. Uh, so the tau itself is a, almost a self-replicating um, a protein that become almost infective. So as the taus break up and become clumps, sometimes they go outside of cells and then they infect other cells with this tauopathy. Mm. It's almost like an infective disorder. I'm simplifying it. We'll do a complete talk about this because it's really, really interesting. And with it comes inflammation. So that's how lifestyle could help whether it's exercise, whether it's sleep, and whether it's nutrition. They're powerful, powerful anti-inflammatory and anti-degenerative processes. So uh, lifestyle has a big part in this as well.
0: So I hope this was helpful. um, And, you know, Traumatic brain injuries are a serious and a very expensive public health issue in the United States, and it's important for us to know a lot about it. I also want to emphasize in the fact that it's important for uh, individuals who experience TBI to see, um, you know, a neurologist or a team of doctors and scientists that specifically deal with TBI, I, because it, it, it has become such a specific field with so much research going on, um, and to make sure that people don't really get stuck with, you know, doctors ordering unnecessary testing or unnecessary neuro, uh, neuroimaging, which is very, very common. Um, some of the organizations that are helpful are the Brain Injury Association of America, the American Academy of Neurology, Brain Injury Society, and all of these will be placed in the notes section so that you can go and do some research on them and find out. And they all have, you know, um, um, a phone number and websites and emails that you can get more information from. But again, if you live in a place where you're close to a university-based hospital, most university-based hospitals have uh, you know, accredited uh, departments and licensed physicians who are quite aware of the latest guideline on concussion and brain injury. And to get f- help from that would be very, very important.
1: The university-based hospitals probably most likely have a TBI team. Yes, uh, It's exactly. a very common thing. And and they would know not just the guidelines, but the steps to take immediately. Very
0: um, uh, Yep. So um, I'm just going to read a couple of questions yes. here. Jan says... Uh, Thoughts on mild TBI symptoms persisting seven years after car accident. Uh, Prognosis after this amount of time with good care from TBI doctor. Can neuro activities possibly help after this amount of time? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. In this way. So one is improving the baseline. The other one is maintaining the baseline. Remember that if your baseline has come down a little bit because of head trauma, because of certain indiscretions that we've all had, lack of sleep at times or or, um, uh, poor food or whatever, Let's say that we've um, we've hit a lower plateau, even if it's a minimal lower plateau. It's not about just improving it, it's about maintaining it, because as we get older, it's not just that lack of plateau, lower plateau, but the plateau can slip because of poor lifestyle and everything else around us. But by living a healthy life, by living a neuro life, you maintain that and potentially increase certain aspects of it. So it's definitely not binary. You can definitely improve, um, even if you've you've been stable at one level for many years. You can still improve, absolutely, and, ab- and at the minimum, stop it from degrading and degenerating.
0: Great, 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 great. Okay, perfect. I think that was it. Oh, Michelle says, "Are there ways to keep our brains from shrinking?" I think this was this, right after the conversation about the bridging the the bridging veins and you know yes. how the brain essentially shrinks.
1: Yeah, yeah 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 so. The, the way to keep the brain from shrinking is everything you're doing: nutrition, whole food, you know, as uh, plant-based and clean plant-based as much as you can. The more, the better. A lot of exercise. We now know that the only thing that grows the brain is exercise, and we're talking about a significant amount of exercise. And we've talked about it. We will have a course, a complete course on exercise, nine section. We'll come up with, um, but the, we definitely lots of exercise at least half an hour of uh, an uh, aerobic and at, l- at least a few minutes, 15 minutes, or half an hour of uh, strength-based exercise, especially the legs. Another reason why the legs are important with head trauma, because why do people fall when they're older? Weaker legs, mm. inability to maintain balance and, 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 and all of that. And then uh, sleep helps clean the brain and keep it as uh, big, and then mental activity keeps the connections going. So that's critical.
0: Absolutely, great yeah okay well that was it for today thank you so much for your attention and for being here with us and uh we're looking forward to having another uh conversation with you all very soon thank you for the questions and let us know if there's anything else that you need to know about traumatic brain injury and we'd be happy to answer it on the main page of our Neuro Academy.